I think the companies that have been most successful that I've sort of seen as an investor, you know, the path to success was rarely kind of a straight, you know, curve up into the right. I mean, there were little bumps along the way. And I think it's being able to really kind of pay attention and um, support companies through those bumps that um, makes a huge difference. Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to give you a few quick business updates. First, check out Thunder.bc. It's a new passion project of mine, a platform that matches founders and investors in a respectful way. In my opinion, it's got to be the easiest way to tap into hundreds of fantastic venture funds and angels. You can reserve your handle at Thunder.vc before it's gone. Also, our incubator is accepting applications. Our program is super active at this point. It's not an accelerator. If an accelerator is a classroom format, our program is more private tutoring. You can find out more at interplay.vc. And on to today's episode. Today we have Josh Stein, the managing partner of Threshold Ventures, a mainstay OG VC firm in Silicon Valley. Before joining the VC world, Josh was an entrepreneur himself. And during the conversation, I labeled Josh the empathic VC, which I think has really shaped and molded not only his business relationships, but the strategy of his firm. We discuss a ton in this episode, including the impact of COVID on operations, global fund strategies, the pros and cons of blending growth and early stage funds, dynasty funds, and a lot of advice for up-and-coming VCs. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high-growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. So, welcome, Josh. Thank you. Great. Good to be here. Uh, So, I'm going to start with doing your interview for you, or your intro for you. I feel like I I don't want to leave you... Uh, with too much time to burn telling your story so we can get into some more complicated conversation. Um, so, and also I can brag about you a little bit in a way you probably won't. Uh, so for those who don't know, Josh Stein is the co-founder and co-managing partner of Threshold Ventures, which is an institution in Silicon Valley. He's had a traditional VC career path when it goes super well. That's the right way to describe it, I think. So Dartmouth undergrad, Stanford Business School, BCG, Microsoft, numerous startups, and then he landed at G- DFJ too many moons ago. Uh, and that's where our, cross actually, our paths actually crossed uh, when we were at DFJ. I was a young VC and Josh would swoop into New York for a board meeting and he would inevitably lend some wisdom to me on every visit, which I was very grateful for. Uh, DFJ transformed into Threshold Ventures and Josh has been very successful. For those who don't know Josh or aren't familiar with him, uh, he's on the board of a bunch of major companies, investor in a bunch of major companies, on the board of Box, investor in... Companies you've heard of like Charpy, Lenkey, Twilio, Yammer, and the list goes on. Uh, he's just, he's an absolute veteran. And I would say at this point, OG Silicon Valley VC with a lot of wisdom to share. Josh, what did I miss? That's a really nice way to say I'm old. Thank you. <laughs> well, as we were just talking about, I'm, I'm catching up to you, unfortunately, too quickly. Uh, so here we go. Uh, so I want to jump in um, and start on the VC side of the house where I want to spend a lot of time today with you, because particularly given your background. Before we kind of go into some VC topics, I would love to get your version of thresholds, just a baseline level set for folks. Mind telling us about the firm? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so Threshold, we're an early stage uh, venture firm, um, sort of notionally based out here in California, although you know, these days, I'm not sure location matters quite so much. Um, you know, we, uh, we try to get involved as the first institutional investor with companies. So uh, what that means is we're typically uh, joining as like the first board member, a lot of companies post seed funding. Um, but you know, before, uh, before the funding becomes more sort of transactional. So we're typically leading uh, series A rounds, you know, five to $15 million. Um, we'll write a check of anywhere between, you know, five and $10 million, uh, typically initially, and then um, we, we tend to be very active engaged investors throughout. So, um, you know, one of our um, beliefs is that uh, particularly at the early stage when things can be uh, in flux, it really 
helps a lot to have at least one investor that's really kind of engaged, paying attention, kind of really you know immersed in the details of the company. Um, and uh, you know, then as the company scales over time, we we continue to support them over time. So as other board members, other firms um, come in as as companies raise additional capital, we don't kind of step back. We tend to stay all the way through, you know, to IPO and and in some cases beyond. Um, you mentioned Box. I actually just stepped off um, uh, late last year after uh, fourteen years on that board. That's a long time. Uh, so you know, we have these kind of yeah, these really long kind of engagements, and we you know invested in every round um, all the way up to the IPO. So you know, from a when it was just, um, you know, three people, you know, all the way up through, you know, and the valuations were in the billion. And so for folks listening, um, that's a little bit unusual. I mean, most VCs who are coming in, they write a check in a round, maybe they have some reserves to follow on the next, but very few funds are life cycle funds where they're deploying capital as a primary investor all the way through. So that, is that the core strategy? Do you do that for every company or is it something you do in some occasions? Yeah. Uh, you know, so so the uh, threshold's a, a spin out, as you mentioned, of, of DFJ. So it was founded by a team from DFJ, and we worked together for a long time. Um, I actually was a DFJ entrepreneur, so I started a company. DFJ led my Series A round back in in '99, uh, and Threshold was really formed out of kind of all of those experiences. And one of the um, things that we really learned about ourselves, but also about how we we thought we could be most helpful to founders, was. Um, this concept of not making lots of small bets and kind of spreading ourselves too thin, but really kind of being intentional about where we wanted to place our time and our money, right? And so, um, you know, to put it in like some numbers, like we have a we have five partners. Mm-hmm. Um, we will typically make, you know, call it seven, eight investments per year. Um, and we won't typically be working across the whole firm with more than, I don't know, 50 or so companies. Um, those numbers may sound large, but in, in venture terms, those are actually really pretty, pretty small, um, particularly these days where firms have gotten really big. So, um, you know, DFJ had been a much bigger firm. So it had, you know, a lot more partners and capital and uh, strategies. And, you know, one of the things that, that we found is that, uh, you know, by we felt that kind of spread us a little too thin. And so mm-hmm. we, we really wanted to be able to focus very, uh, very intentionally. And, it's, you know, that's what we've sort of done with Threshold. You mentioned kind of the life cycle approach. You know, I, I think that's a benefit both to the, the founders that we work with, because we're you know, we, we want to be kind of that trusted partner and sort of that, you know, that first um, call, not just at the beginning, but also kind of um, over time, but also from the, you know, from the LP side of our business. So the investors in our funds, you know, we're typically investing more than half of the capital in our funds, not in the first round, but in subsequent rounds. Mm-hmm. And so if we're doing our job well as investors, you know, we're building more, con- you know, conviction in which companies are the best opportunities over time. So we're, we, we think, you know, that first investment is always a bit of a, leap of faith, right? Um, and th- but, you know, as you, if you're investing in a company you've been working with for five or six years, you know, you have a pretty differentiated view on that opportunity. And so we, we find that's also a real driver of performance for us. Yes, yeah, so you have an information advantage. Now, there, there are firms out there right. that take this to the extreme and they try to do every dollar into the company. They don't syndicate. And yeah, they write a $5 million check in your A, but they want to do 20 in your C. And they want to be the dominant source of capital for the, for the company. Is that the strategy here or is the strategy to continue to participate, which is very different, which means for folks who are less familiar um, that other firms will maybe lead or meaningfully participate in future rounds. And so you'll have a diversified uh, investor base. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the, the, there's capital and there's also, you know, kind of um, effort and time. And so one of the things we found is, you know, you, you want to have more hands on the oars, particularly as companies scale, you know, different firms have different networks, different um, expertise that they can bring to the table. And so um, we think it's in the company's best interest to be able to partner with multiple investors over time. Right. Uh, and so we've sort of built our strategy to, you know, to fit around that. So we, we want to uh, stay engaged and stay relevant all the way through. We're, we're often, you know, the, if, you, if you look at a company at exit at I, IPO or M&A, we're, we're often, other than the founders, going to be the largest investor by ownership on the cap table, but typically pretty far down the list by, by dollars by the time the companies, you know, have raised maybe, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or something like that. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, I, I think the, the, the problem with the strategy, I think, of doing, you know, every dollar in is I think it comes at a cost, which is if, you have, if your fund's a couple billion dollars, it's really hard to, you know, invest a couple million dollars and think that's going to, you know, sort of move the needle for the fund. And so we, we want sort of every dollar to feel like it matters. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's why we also don't make, 
you know, tiny little investments. Like we don't, um, you know, they used to call it sort of spray and pray. Right. And, and uh, where you'd make, you know, lots of little like, you know, $200,000 investments. We found those just didn't, you know, $200,000, you can have a hundred X and it's still not that much money in dollars. And so, um, you know, we've, we've just tried to be more, it's, it's sort of being intentional and focused in everything we do. Interestingly, we had, uh, I had Ian Sigalo on the show last week and we were talking about his str- uh, strategy at Greycroft. Um, they have a similar thing in that they deploy early stage capital and growth capital, which I think is a little different than what you're describing. You're, you're talking about continuing to participate in a meaningful way in rounds. He's talking yep. about coming in with a $30 million check uh, in the C. And his comment was they actually divided the firm into two because at the growth stage, the early stage dollars didn't move the needle. So how does, how does it balance out for you guys? You're doing about 50% in the first Series A check. Is, and so the follow-on dollars are still meaningful. Is that the concept? How does it, yeah, how does it's, it work um, out? Yeah, I mean, I think if we're, if we're you know, doing our job right as investors, uh, again, from the, the investment in the LP side, yeah. you know, if you, yeah, you, if, you look, if you look at the fund at the, well, yeah, but also if you, if you look at the fund at the end and you, and you stack drink the companies by kind of outcome in terms of the, the you know, gains that were generated, you, you'd ideally want to see the investment costs also follow a similar pattern, right? So you had mo- the most money in, Mm-hmm. the best companies over time. Um, I, I think you also, though, balance that as, as investors, again, being you know, real committed partners. We, we work with all of our founders. I mean, we, you, you'll spend, as a venture investor, you'll spend a lot of your time and a decent amount of your capital on uh, companies that are, are not the ones that necessarily um, go to the moon, but you want to help everyone find you know, kind of the best outcome that they can over time. And so um, you know, we, would, uh, we support you know, almost every company we invest, I'd say, through multiple rounds, but we also do try to concentrate the capital over time in, in what we think of as the most, you know, kind of compelling opportunities. With the, with the multiple strategies thing, I think, I, I definitely see the pros. I mean, you need growth, st- I think you need growth stage investors because, you know, it's a different skill set underwriting an investment, you know, when a company has lots of data, you know, if you have a thousand employees and a hundred million in revenue, there's a lot of data. The deal structure is slightly different. Of, Everything's different. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. Um, you know, so I think there's definitely a thing for that or a need for that. Um, I think uh, the question I would have is why be a single firm at all, um, you know, versus why not have those as separate firms? So that, that's where maybe we differ with sort of some of the conventionalism. Right. So, so at your core, Threshold is an early stage investment firm that meaningfully right. participates. I'm sure you, it sounds like you, you participate more with the companies that are doing well, but you guys invest your operational resources and your time across the board, regardless to be a good partner. What does that mean for an entrepreneur? Let's say entrepreneur comes in, let's say they've got a hot company and they've got options. Why do they pick threshold? Why, why, is, why is your money the money um, that they should be grabbing? Yeah, so you know, the, the thing that we always encourage um, founders to do is talk to our other founders, you know, because that's like the, you know, it's do, do the references on us. Mm-hmm. And I think what people will hear pretty consistently is that, um, you know, that we're, Kind of the people that are the the, the most engaged and sort of most um, active um, with the founder. So because we don't work with a lot of companies, it allows us to really focus that time and attention. And I think that um, you know at the early stage, I don't think you need like a you know to be deal- if you're a founder and you you know you're ten employees or twenty employees and you're you know you're in that kind of scaling process, you don't really need to be working with like a dozen investors. What you really need is I think one or two that are right, really kind of yeah yeah engaged and paying attention. And you know those conversations tend to happen um, you know, pretty frequently. Right. Um, as opposed to kind of in a, you know, late stage company might have a quarterly board meeting. Right. Um, you know, it's more of an organic process kind of at the early stage. Picking up the phone um, and coffees and that's more what you're describing, yeah. right? Less of formal board meetings yeah. and PowerPoints. And so what kind of things are they and, coming and think, to you for? Is there a pattern or it's just all the typical operational stuff that comes up from HR to mm-hmm. sales strategies? Is, is it all, or is there a thing you guys specialize in that you want everyone to know about? Um, I, I think for us, it's kind of everything, but one of the things we tried to do with our team is also have different skill sets among the partners. So for mm-hmm. example, at Threshold, I tend to focus on the go-to-market side and I'm on the sales and marketing. And so I'll, you know, th- there's companies where I lead the investment for the firm, but then I'll, I'll also work with founders where I'm not the lead partner, but I'm, I'm helping them with their go-to-market. Um, one of my partners, Heidi Roizen, is probably one of the most experienced board members um, in Silicon Valley, right? And so she has kind of um, that perspective, my partner Emily Melton uh, is one of the you know deepest in healthcare and healthcare tech in terms of that any structure. It's just something we've been you know about half of our portfolios 
related to healthcare tech in one way or another, because it's just it's a massive market undergoing huge transition right now. There's, you know, in kind of incredible opportunities there. And so we've tried to really kind of, um, you know, have different skill sets within the partnership. One benefit of having a small team and a small portfolio is also that all of our partners can know all of the companies and vice versa, right? So, you know, um, I, when I was a founder, I worked with a number of firms, you know, they would typically have any, uh, 100 to 200 portfolio companies or, or more. Right. And it wouldn't be uncommon for me to run into like a GP at one of those firms at an event and they, you know, they'd invested, you know, 10 or $15 million in my company, but they, they would have no idea who I was. Mm -hmm. And, and that always struck me as kind of strange. And so, you know, we try to have more of this kind of, um, you know, there, there's a cost to scale, right. Um, on the, on the investing side. So our, our strategy, the internet of our strategy is it, I would argue it's, it fundamentally doesn't scale, mm -hmm. um, which is ironic because we're looking for companies at scale, but, but we're okay with that. We've kind of said, you know, um, to do what we do and to do it well, you know, it's, it's not something that, you know, we're never going to be the biggest. We just want to be the best. Mm -hmm. So um, you're really focused on generating returns, multiples and having positive impact to the entrepreneurs. And I'd really stress the latter. I mean, I think the, the returns come. Like if you, if, you, if you pick interesting opportunities and good people to work with, and if you apply you know, the right effort, I think the returns come. I think the, the kind of joy we take in the business is really working with the founders. And, and at least, you know, um, I'll speak for myself. I mean, that, that's really, when I look back, as you kindly pointed out on a you know, lot of years, um, You're welcome. You know, it, it's, not the, it's not the numbers that, you know, get me excited. It's like the, you know, having worked with founders and watching them but you're not, build the stuff. It resonates. I mean, you're an entrepreneur, right? Like you've been doing stuff on the operating side before. You didn't come at this directly from consulting with only a consulting background. So yeah, I understand why I, I think that, yeah. that, that there's an allure. Well, you're kind. Yeah, it's it, your DNA. I, I wouldn't say I was like a great founder or anything. I mean, I think, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I think I was a, I'm a better investor. I was a founder, but they, I think, I think it'd be really hard to be a venture investor without having spent some time at a startup. I, it's, it's possible for sure. Like there are definitely people who, if you start really early in venture and you, you know, you're going, you're meeting lots of founders, you're going to lots of board meetings stuff. I think you can absolutely pick that up. But the, um, you know, I think coming like right from like banking or consulting would be, would be really not a great idea. Um, you know, you'd ask about kind of the, the, sort of um, types of, you know, one, one thing that's really interesting in venture is, um, you know, the founders are always going to be much deeper in the technologies and the, the industries and the companies than they were. Like when I was running, you know, my company is like, you know, you're, you eat and you wake up and, you know, you're this, all you're thinking about is the one company. As a venture investor, you're kind of, you're broader, but you're also shallower. But the interesting, those two perspectives go really well. So, um, you know, like if, uh, let's say the VP of sales quits. Right. Right. Um, that may be the first time that that founder is probably the first time that founder has dealt with that. I've seen that half a dozen times. Right. And each situation's been different, but I can sit down with the founder and say, look, okay, I've seen this before. Like, here's kind of what we did at these things and here's what worked. And by the way, you can call, you know, you call Aaron at Vox and, you know, ask him how he handled it. And, you know, this kind of thing. And that, that I think tends to be the kind of really helpful value add that we can bring. But I think um, also recognizing that it's not, that we have like better information at all. It's just, it's a different perspective. It's like, you know, as an investor, you're kind of the shallow and wide versus the really deep and intense. I appreciate the humility in that. I, I feel like w when I first started out in venture, I, I think the misperception I had uh, when I'd encounter a lot of other young investors that a lot of folks had was that they thought because people were asking them for money and um, being very nice to them, that there was an assumption that they actually knew more. I think it's very rare for a VC to know more about an industry than the entrepreneur. Very rare. Um, but the idea... Oh, I, 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 I think, I mean, if, if that's the case, then, you know, that, that's probably a problem. Right. It, it's the pattern matching and op general operating skills that I think apply. So when you've talked about, let me, let me take this a different direction for a second. You've got a very unique strategy um, in that you're very focused on very few things. And as you've mentioned, it's not super scalable. Um, and I, I go on a tangent here for a second. I think one of the limiting factors in scaling venture funds is board seats. We can talk about that if you're interested. But when I look at this, um, it sounds a lot different than the iteration of the firm before. Do you want to talk about how the strategies evolved from back when it was, you know, I know it's a while ago now, when it was DFJ, uh, and what you learned from that and wh why you've taken this current approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, I think the, you know, DFJ, uh, I think, 
you know, really had a, a vision of kind of, you know, applying, they, they, you know, they've done really well for, for themselves. I think you need to apply. Uh, I think it'd be it, helpful to maybe start with an overview of DFJ. I bet you, uh, oh, sure. not so, everyone knows yeah, so, the scope and scale of the firm, which was massive, massive. Yeah. So, so DFJ was founded by Tim Draper in 1985, uh, when he was a really young guy and, and Tim is a you know, legendary investor, you know, huge personality, very bold thinker, you know, uh, you know, like that bought, you know, $20 million of Bitcoin at 600 bucks a Bitcoin, you know, with his own money. For the right? win. I mean, it's for, yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah. that's a pretty spectacular that, um, you know, but that's pretty typical Tim, right? I mean, he's, he's bold, he's sort of fearless, um, you know, and, and he's also, you know, kind of like, you know, he'll climb one hill and then he wants to climb a bigger hill and bigger, bigger. Hill. And, you know, he'd, he'd been very, very successful. Uh, uh, and, you know, I think his, his vision was to sort of bring venture capital um, globally to, you know, kind of every corner of the world and, and every sector. And I think I, I completely agree with the idea that, you know, there's, there's entrepreneurs everywhere and opportunities everywhere. I think um, at least, you know, my observation was that the, the executing that operationally was challenging mm -hmm. and um, that uh, you, you, the things were lost in terms of the ability to really work closely with the entrepreneurs. And you have, you know, 400 portfolio companies as the managing partner, it's really hard to even know what all four of those companies do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not that that strategy was, was right or wrong. It's just, there was a group of us that said, we really want to go back to kind of being able to work really closely with the companies and not have, you know, the partner meetings be, you know, kind of all day Monday where we're kind of, you know, covering the whole empire. And, um, you know, we kind of took the venture part of the business and sort of extracted it and the U S venture part and kind of focused that, um, the, the growth stage, uh, investing team, DFJ growth, which is, um, Still active, which right? Which is a fabulous. Yeah. Oh, very. I mean, yeah, not, not just well. active. I mean, they're one of the one of the best growth stage firms out there. They've absolutely crushed it. Um, you know, uh, they they uh, had always operated um, pretty independently, and and we, you know, we're still very friendly. But we kind of said, you know, look, if there doesn't really make sense for us to be a single firm, like it's, mm. you know, we should we should be kind of affiliated, but not not this kind of tight line. Um, and um, yeah, and so you know, we 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 sort of. Um, uh, kind of spun out the firm in in 2013 2014 and um have been sort of threshold threshold since the the name threshold is newer than that we we spun it out initially as dfj venture which is sort of a uh small like a half a smallish sort of change yeah yeah like a half rebrand and then we and then we kind of decided to do but your strategy full, shifted the full then. Rebrand. So you've you, you've been operating under mm -hmm. the new playbook for about a decade yes yeah oh god that's mm. funny i didn't think of it that way but you're right you're, it's almost you're welcome you're welcome Thank you. Uh, yeah. Um, okay. So, but just for people listening, just a little clarity. I mean, the DFJ uh, network at the time, back at the, when I joined, which was 06, I worked with yep. the East Coast satellite, was sprawling. I mean, I believe there was 150 GPs. I believe it was the second or fir first or second largest firm by deals invested per year in the world. Um, most years, I think it was most years the largest. Most I mean, years it was, was you enormous. Know, be a few, yeah. yeah, it was enormous. Was, um, I don't think it would, you know, there are firms that are bigger now, right? Like if you think about like a, like a Sequoia, for example, like, you know, they, you know, they have offices in India and China and growth and early stage. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a lot of different strategies and people. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really, really big. And, and the DFJ approach to it back then, if I remember correctly, was a bit of a franchise model. It'd find a local partnership, partner up with them, bring access to capital and knowledge about the industry, add platform value. and implement the network that way. That's different than what we're seeing Sequoia and other firms do with their global offices, I think. Is, is that right? Or is it, are, are you seeing, because it feels like that Tim was a trendsetter, right? He, he broke new ground in trying yep. to be global about venture, which I think has come to fruition. Um, it's become a reality if you're looking around at what's happening in the innovation front now. Um, but when I look at the, the model, did the model persist or did people take it a different, take the, a different path as they looked at global expansion? Uh, well, I, you know, if I think like many franchising things, or building proprietary funds and other, um, it, it, it's more nuanced than that. Right. But it's, you know, so the, the question is be like, you know, do you raise the capital from a single, like in a single process, uh, uh from a single set of LPs, you know, who, who makes the decisions ultimately, right? Like, right. do you have like a kind of a, like a senior set of partners at the global level that have maybe like an override authority that how do these investments work? you mean? But the, the gist would be like, I think you see this a lot just in general in business, which is there's someone who has that initial first idea and the first iteration is sort of directionally right, but not 
perfect. And then it gets iterated, iterated. So you have like Friendster, right? And then MySpace and then finally Facebook, yeah. right? And I'm sure there'll be, you know, something after that. Um, you know, I would, I would argue that, you know, DFJ's model was kind of the first. Yeah, the, sure. the, the idea of going global, of having all these offices and all these GPs was just like thought of as crazy in the industry. And if you look at it now, that's where a lot of the biggest, you know, firms are. And I think they've taken their own twists on it and, and evolved it. And I think they're probably, fr- I've never seen, by the way, the venture industry in more transition and flux than it is right now. Mm. Like the, everything is changing um, so dramatically. Um, uh, but I think that, um, you know, it's, I think it's, it's not exactly the same as the way the DFJ was. But all that said, I think, you know, we still believe that, you know, being focused, I, I, I think there's, it, it's, I, it's inarguable that there's an overhead that comes with managing scale. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's pros that come with that. And I think when we, um, with most of the companies we work with, we'll ultimately raise capital from one of the, you know, call it platform funds mm-hmm. over time. And I think actually our model works extremely well with them because we're a small fund size, um, which we do very intentionally. Um, you know, we, we may own I don't know, 15% of a company or something, and, but, and, but when they're raising $200 million, we're not going to write a $30 million pro rata check. And so we're not kind of crowding out, you know, uh, the, the platform funds there. So we actually, it's easier for us to co-invest or for a platform to co-invest with us than it is with another platform fund where they're both looking to, you know, kind of do super pro rata and jam in as much capital as possible. Right. So you've got the early stage guys, you've got the growth guys, you've got the firms that do both under one roof and you've got the firms, mm-hmm. I believe like Foundry, where they try to do every dollar in the company. Very different models, very different approaches. Um, jury's out, I think, on which works and probably, uh, probably the jury's out on which works for which GPs. Because if you can get the bets right at the early stage, I bet you every dollar in is a great way to go. But it's hard to do. I, I uh, you know, I, I, I think probably all the model. I think you nailed it, which is for which GP. I mean, I think it's really dependent on the personalities of the, the people. Um, although, you know, one thing, if you look at like private equity, right, yeah. um, you know, or hedge funds, as they became much bigger, more institutionalized, I'd argue they became much less about the personalities of the people. Um, and they became, you know, more like corporations themselves. And I think some venture firms are starting to look like that, I think. Um, but I think, you know, what, what we do and sort of the roots of the industry are more in these sort of, you know, you really have at the end of the day, you know, five to 10 kind of people that are sort of making the decisions at most of the funds historically. Yep. Um, I think there's a lot of pros that come with that in terms of, you know, being able to be nimble, being able to, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of, uh, leaps of faith and kind of intuition venture right so there's you know um things like COVID happen right and you know you have to kind of you know really kind of sit down and, and go through the portfolio and say okay what are we going to do about this and what's our perspective and some companies maybe we're fundraising right in the middle of that and you know the processes just you know the market sort of shuts down for a little bit and but they need capital so you've got to sort of step in like on an emergency basis i think being able to be small and, and nimble really helps there in a way that it would be harder if you were bigger and institutional so let's take a different tact with the same conversation um, I, I know when, uh, during the transition, even before you guys spun out, uh, and became threshold, you had major fundraising responsibilities for the firm, if I'm not mistaken. H- yeah. How is it, what did you learn and how has it differed raising for a large platform fund to use your language versus more of a boutique size fund? And I, I don't know how much money do you guys manage now? What's the current fund size? Um, so we, we typically are like in the two to 300 million. Right range per fund um we're about uh 800 million of aum in total fantastic so for that size firm i'm sure it's a lot different uh in the way you're presenting it in the conversations how does it change for fundraising is one easier than the other have you seen any major on the lp side and the reason i ask is probably a lot of uh early vcs are going to be listening to this for the people who Uh, are coming up what should they be hearing and learning oh i mean (laughs) there's fundraising it's a whole whole thing um we can talk about that um yeah i think um uh i don't know one's necessarily harder than the other i, I think you're talking to different investors um one th- one thing that we've you know had to, to deal with a little bit is um you know some of our investors the limited partners have gotten you know when they started working with us 10 years ago they were a certain size now they're they're much bigger because the market's you know been huge and a lot of capital's come in and um you know so uh as they've scaled like it's kind of the, the problem they're taking the big platform funds like they have to we can only take so much capital per LP mm-hmm. and um, that might've been 1% of their assets 10 years ago. And now it's, you know, a quarter of a percent. Oh, interesting. And so, uh, so have those institutions yeah, so, sized you know, out for you? Like they're too big now and you've gone to smaller institutions that are more appropriate or 
do they do they like the fact that they get we, more diversification? They can invest yeah, in you and generally. Other funds? Yeah, gen generally we've managed to hang out of those folks, but it's kind of a constant tension. At some point, you, you know, you can sort of see that that's going to be an issue. But our, our kind of view is let, let's, I, I re as respectful as I am of that constraint and that problem for you, like our strategy works with this amount of capital. Right, we're right? trying to make and you so that's what we're, yeah. And, and, and I, we think that if we took more capital, um, I don't know that it would, uh, you know, I, I believe that at least the way we're currently configured, it would, it would make, you know, yield less results for them. Um, I don't know if there's one perfect solution in venture. I think there's lots of different ways to solve the problem. I know, you know, for us that this is this is the way that we like to work, and and it, I think we've shown that it's both effective, but also, um, you know, for us, it's personally rewarding, right? And lets us kind of work the way we want to work. What would be a tip you could give folks listening who are maybe on their first or second fund early in the process? You're a veteran fundraiser who's done it in a bunch of different ways. You've had the opportunity to pitch institutional LPs. A lot of the folks who are working through family offices aren't at that level yet or ever. Um, any any words of wisdom for the folks who are learning and kind of coming up? Because, you know, the next generation is being groomed right now. Um, probably the biggest one would be it's it's a long, these are long relationships. And you have to be, I think, respectful of the fact that, so with most venture funds, Limited partners are committing effectively to a blind pool where they're going to have no ability. They have no say over decision making of how that capital is invested. They have no ability to withdraw their capital. Um, really, it's a huge leap of faith on their part. And those the funds are typically 10 years with extensions. And re realistically, most venture funds have gone significantly beyond 10 years. Um, you know, if you put yourself in their shoes, like that's that's a big leap. And so I think it takes time to build those relationships. I don't think that it's a, I think that um, it makes the fundraising for companies, which I think is from a founder standpoint, can often be a painful, feels like a long distraction. Um, you know, it, it makes that look like kind of a cakewalk in some way. So I think, you know, typically we've had relationships with LPs that go back, you know, multiple years where we've been talking to them and sort of explaining our strategy and kind of talking about, you know, the companies we think are interested in our views on the markets and the world. And you sort of, you build credibility through those conversations. And then I think when ultimately then they choose to invest, it's because they know you and they have a a conviction and sort of like, you know, you, you do what you say you're going to do and, and, you know, that you're more right than you are wrong in the things that you say. Mm -hmm. um, I think that, you know, having the, the patience um, to build those relationships over time and, and not being in as much of a rush is, is really helpful. How long does uh, it the take? Thing I think is when you're saying over time, is that, are we talking six months or six years? What's, what, what should people well, expect I think, who are coming up to this I process? Think, I think, so I think that it depends on the types of investors. So I think with, um, there are some investors that are funds themselves, um, like fund of funds. And some of our most thoughtful LPs are, are, are those, like, because they, they, they work with, you know, they're, they're managers themselves. They, they work with lots of uh, venture investors. Uh, like the folks at Top Tier, for example, in San Francisco have been mm -hmm. longtime supporters of us. They're, you know, super engaged. They're probably more willing to take a risk on somebody that they've known for maybe, a, you know, six months or something like that. Um, and then there's, you know, uh, like pension funds and family offices where it might be longer, right? Or, or endowments where they might want to watch you for a couple of fund cycles. And so I think, you know, you, you have to kind of time your approach to the type of LP and understand sort of where they're coming from. But I think, you know, L LPs in general, um, you know, I think the, they, uh, the way a lot of them are compensated and rewarded, it, they don't necessarily get as many accolades for the picking well as they do take risk on picking poorly. So, um, you know, they tend to be a little bit more risk averse. And I think just sort of being kind of empathetic about where they're coming from and helping them, uh, even just showing that you're, you understand where they're coming from, you're being respectful of that, I think goes a long way. Um, how can you, you know, it's, uh, how, how can a fund strategy or messaging be packaged to recognize their perspective? What are the things you're, when you say you want to be empathetic to um, a, bil a built-in propensity for risk aversion, how do you placate that for them? You talk about downside scenarios. Is there, is there some slide you use? What's the piece that illuminates that understanding? Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the inventor, at least in my experience, the sins uh, from from the from where I sit, as sort of the GP side, the sins of omission are more than the sins of commission, right? So it's mm -hmm. like the deals that you that you didn't do, or the you know uh, having distributed or sold companies too early has cost us way more money than the company than the bets we've made where the companies you know fail, for mm -hmm. example. Um, 
I think um, with that said, uh, so you could, you could argue, hey, it's all about the winners and the upside, and sort of you know um, you know just sort of go for it, and you know if you if you don't make it, you sort of die on the beach and move on to the next thing. Um, I think uh, you know that's not really how LPs think. So I think with LPs, and I think they have a point. You know, you want to talk about you know risk mitigation and how you think about you know having you know kind of controls and how you think about um, recovering partial. You know, it's uh, a lot of GPs like I can't be. I've invested ten million dollars. I don't really care if it's zero or five. You know that I get back. It, you know, I'm I'm playing all for the hundred pluses, mm-hmm. and that's that's the right strategy in some ways. I don't think that's actually a great message to either LPs or interestingly to founders because I'll, if I'm a founder, I'm thinking, okay, well, so you're saying if I'm not a ten x for you, you don't care. Like, right? That's not great either. This is my right? life's worth for I ten a, years. Yeah, yeah, as a founder, I've got a portfolio of one, right? And right. so. Um, so I think on both sides, you know, just kind of being a little bit more thoughtful about, you know, okay, how are we going to, um, I, I, I would argue most good GPs spend probably more time, um, with companies that are ultimately, you know, kind of marginally successful or maybe uh, don't even return capital, uh, and finding the, you know, good outcomes for those relatively good outcomes for those companies than they do on, on making the best companies even greater. Because the, the companies that are just kind of going to the moon are, are sort of going to the moon, right? You're sort of along for the ride. Um, I think you build a lot of your reputation actually with how you handle your investments that struggle. Mm. And can you help them find, you know, some kind of, um, you know, respectful, you know, relatively good outcome. Um, there are VC sages out there that will say, hey, that's now where you should be spending your time. You should be spending time trying to help maximize the upside on the big ones. Right? There's, there's some conventional wisdom that floats around VC that the dogs take all the time. And there, the, the subtext of that is that's not where you're supposed to spend your time if you're ruthlessly focusing on returns. I, I mean, at some level, they're not, they're not wrong, but, they're, but they are, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, I think if, if you're a founder, do you, um, you, know, it, you know, have, I don't know, like I, I, I think having somebody who's just utterly ruthless as my partner, especially when it's my only maybe investor partner, yeah. not such a great idea. You know, yeah. um, uh, I also think it's, it's short-sighted. I think people kind of fool themselves like that, you know, like that, that you can even sort of know, I mean, the number of, of the, I think of the companies that have been most successful that I've sort of seen as an investor, you know, the path to success was rarely kind of a straight, you know, curve up into the right. I mean, there were little bumps along the way, and I think it's being able to really kind of pay attention and, um, support companies through those bumps that, um, makes a huge difference. Um, what, one of my companies that's doing best right now, the, the founder um, had a early on had a tough month and, and she, um, uh, you know, kind of came in and was really concerned about it. And I, I, I said to her, look, you know, when, if in a couple of years, you're going to look back and like, when you look at the graph on revenue, you're not even going to see this blip. Like it's like, you know, the scale is going to have changed so much on the Y axis. Like it's, it seems like a big deal now. Trust me. Like it's, you're not even going to notice this thing. Um, and I think like, that's, you know, that. I, I know that made a, she's, she's mentioned to me and over times like that, like kind of helped her sort of just contextualize and, and, you know, kind of relax a little bit. Um, but I think it's, it's true. And I think, you know, if you, um, the problem with being like ruthless and sort of, you know, always optimizing is I think you're going to actually optimize yourself out of a lot of successful outcomes. And I think you're also going to piss off a lot of people and along the way. You know, hearing everything you're describing, it sounds like the whole strategy, the approach, the perspective is all hinging and centralized around empathy in a way that you don't usually hear from business people, let alone, you know, most of the VC community. Sounds like you're taking an empathy towards understanding the LPs and empathy towards understanding the entrepreneurs. And I've actually gone the, making, made some hard decisions to forego scalability to actually construct your model to service uh, the entrepreneurs you're investing in rather than just capitalize on them. That's lovely. I, I, I think it's something we don't well, It's hear. a cool way to put it. I mean, but it's, it's, I, 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 I think I, I it's coming through. It. I think it's the subtext of this whole story. I mean, I think if we're going to put a title on this thing, it's going to be Empathic oh, VC. God. That's where I think this is going. <laughs> well, I'm not sure I'd put myself in that. I, I mean, I, I, Does I that appreciate sound right that. Does that sound right to you? I mean, it's, eh, I mean, okay. it, it sounds a little, maybe I've, I've, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're doing also because we think it's and, what, and, and flowers in my interpretation yeah. of this. Tell me. Well, I think it's, it's also, it's what it's, you know, what makes us want to do this and get out of, you know, ventures a long haul, as you know, I mean, I've been doing this 17, 17 years, admit and, it. you know, you, 
Yeah, well, I, I got another 10 or 15 in front of me, I think. I mean, so it's, it's a, you know, and you work with companies for 10, 10 plus years easily. So, um, you know, you got to, like, like founders, I mean, you got to want to kind of, we, we have a much easier, I think, role than founders do from a kind of emotional toll and stress standpoint. Um, but I think you still have to want to get up every day and do it. And, um, you know, so for us, it's, we've really built the strategy on what, what gets us out of bed and what makes us excited. And also, I think it's what, what do we think is going to generate the best returns? What, one thing about scale is we're, there are definitely, I definitely think there are strategies we could follow that would make more absolute dollars of gain than what we're doing. But I think we, we care a lot about, rel- about performance. So for us, it's, it's knowing that we delivered superior returns to our investors, not just, you know, like I'd rather make a, you know, a 5X on two or 300 million than I would make you know, 2X on 2 billion, right. even though the latter would be more dollars. Right. And there are people who definitely right. choose the latter because they are optimizing for that. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's just a different strategy. Nothing, nothing wrong with that. Just, yeah. To, yeah, it's a different strategy. So, but here's the thing. The core of the strategy in these firms is a little bit like a fingerprint, right? You've, you've built a job for yourself that you want to do. You're talking about getting out of bed. You're talking about constructing a, lo- a quality of life where you're working with a certain number of companies where it's reasonable and you're connected and you have an emotional connection, a human connection. When I look at these firms where, you know, now that I've been in the business for going on 15 years, you start to see about, you start to see transition planning and you're someone who's actually lived through it where the firm has gone from, um, you know, uh, one group to another. Uh, and it's basically a dynasty, right? The uh, you know, threshold has survived through a long period. Um, you know, I guess all in probably close to 30 years at this point, right? Do you think that's the right mechanism for firms or should firms live and die with a certain set of partners, right? Like when you and your current partners are done, should you close the doors and let the people who want to go on reform their own operation or, because it it sounds like so tailored to your interests and your personal perspective. I, I think it's a great point. I, I, I mean, I think, I think we'd all like to see the things that we've built continue beyond us. Uh, but I also think you're nailing it, which is I think it has to, to be the way that the people who are carrying that flag forward want it to be. And I think that's part of the, the natural evolution. I give you know, Tim and, and John Fisher immense credit for uh, you know, letting us uh, you know, kind of remake the firm in a way that worked for what we wanted to do, which was different than I think what got them excited. And I think that's what enabled that transition to be successful. I think there are definitely lots of firms where it hasn't, it hasn't worked. Uh, and I think you have to kind of let each generation kind of remake things the way it is. Also, the world's not static, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the you know, the markets are different, the technology is different, the founders are different. Um, Seed wasn't even a category so when I started. Yeah, it, there wasn't, oh, yeah, yeah. the whole I class mean, wasn't there. We, we have, so within, within our current portfolio, we have half a dozen companies that are north of Hundred million in revenue. We have you know private companies that have hundreds of like many hundreds of millions in revenue. I uh, there's one of our companies uh, generated north of twenty million of EBITDA and free cash flow. Amazing in a quarter. In a quarter, right? Last quarter. I mean, like like these are you know these are these would be like companies that were you know years post public when I joined um, uh, in in two thousand four. And so like the it's just a totally different totally different world than it was before. And you know we're seeing all these new innovations like SPACs. Right. Um, I was actually just talking with uh, one of the major investment banks this morning about like, you know, with, with the companies being so big now, the, the range of financing options that become available. Like if you're that cash generative, yeah. the range of options of what like a bank could structure for you in terms of financing really open up significantly. Right. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's just fascinating to watch this kind of evolution. Um, it feels like we're entering an era access. where, you know, PE and VC used to be there was, a, there was a Chinese wall. It was an iron curtain between the two. They, they never overlapped. It feels like there's now increasingly, increasing integration of the VC portfolios into the financial ecosystem, the broader ecosystem. Mm-hmm. There's moments where they're taking out clever debt structures or we never used to see venture-backed companies doing roll-ups. That was really uncommon. And now that's, you know, you have companies like Compass, which are essentially would-be private equity firms, you know, private equity-backed roll-ups out doing that under a venture flag. Um, what if, in your perspective, how has, you know, the last year or so changed the game? Cause you mentioned there's a lot of shifts that have happened over the last decade. Obviously the last year has been very momentous in so many ways. What have you seen be maybe enduring shifts in the venture game that people need to be thinking about either as LPs when they're investing entrepreneurs or upcoming VCs? So 
I, I would say I got this totally wrong in March when COVID hit, which is, I think, um, you know, I, I think I, and I think a lot of folks thought that, wow, this is going to be like a recession kind of coming on. I think it became pretty clear within like a month or two, that wasn't the case at all. Um, I think, you know, COVID tech and software in particular really are kind of changing the world and, and in, in every vertical market. I mean, there's, it, it would be almost impossible to name a market that hasn't been or isn't being transformed actively by technology right now. Um, COVID turned out to be a huge accelerant of that, right? And so I, like, I'll give you like an example. So, um, you know, we have, uh, we have a company in New York, um, uh, BentoBox, which provides SaaS software for restaurants and hospitality. And when COVID hit, you know, we thought, gosh, you know, restaurants are going to be closed. Yeah, dude. This is going to be tough times for Bento. Right. You know, uh, uh, Crystal Mabiani, the founder and her team, pivoted um, some of their product offerings towards things like uh, the, you know, the takeout and delivery kind of options. They kept a lot of their customers alive and their business is thriving as a result. I mean, I never would have predicted the kind of growth Love they that. had last year in March. And, and, you know, and so they're, you know, they're, they're literally like restaurants that would have had zero revenue options have now pivoted, you know, like, you know, fine dining where they would have never bothered with takeout to any significant degree, right? That, you know, totally shifted. Um, you know, one of my companies, the, the companies in our portfolio that I work with, TalkDesk, um, is uh, uh, so contact center software, so you know, call center software. Typically, it's one of the, it's a huge market. It's like more than $10 billion a year. It's one of the last areas of software that really hadn't gone cloud. Mm. Um, interestingly, Twilio, which was an, another one of our investments, sort of really enabled this kind of transformation to cloud. You could see that it was going to go to the cloud. All software is going to go to the cloud course, over yeah. time. But when COVID hit, you can't have an on-prem call center. Like you can't have a thousand people in a warehouse sitting shoulder to shoulder. Totally. And so, you know, that one was maybe a little easier to call, but like, I would say in general, you know, it, 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 it almost sounds icky to say, it sounds like war profiteering or something, but I would say like COVID has forced the transformations to happen even faster in our portfolio. And I'd say across really just the tech industry in general has been, I think, largely huge net beneficiaries. You're mentioning, I mean, look at, look at Airbnb. You're mentioning B2B, like yeah, you, B2C you, even. We, we have a, uh, we have a company that does, uh, sells couches, right? And yeah. they've been growing like wildfire for a long time, but not really penetrating the senior demographic. With COVID, they started seeing seniors buying on, online. Things that just, you know, you don't, you don't see that going back afterward after people understand the convenience and are comfortable swiping your credit card. So I agree with you. COVID has been good for tech. But how has it changed venture? The industry, the way we operate, fund constructs. What do you think are the major shifts coming for us? Yeah. So, you know, when, when we talked about like us having kind of a small, you know, tight team, one of the things we really value is that, um, you know, we can talk about every company and every investment opportunity with our, with our full team, right? So we really valued kind of our ability to have these sort of intimate conversations with our, uh, with our investment team. Um, you know, it, when we weren't able to meet in person, that was a challenge. So we, we really had to be thoughtful about how we kind of reinvented our internal workflows and processes. So we sort of over-indexed on, okay, we're going to go from one partner meeting a week to two. Um, you know, we have an all hands, um, uh, every Monday we have with, with the kind of the full team, including, uh, beyond the investment team, we do these sort of, you know, we have monthly kind of, um, activities we've, you know, heavily migrated, um, into, you know, platforms like, uh, like Slack, uh, for example, uh, that sort of facilitate kind of that more kind of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, quick paced communication. Obviously we're all spending like, you know, tons of time on zoom. Yeah. I think a lot of that's going to stick. I mean, I think. I think we're still going to want to go back to being able to sit down in a room together and, and kind of talk about things. So I think some of the, there are some of the interactions that happen that are, uh, you, you don't sort of shoot the shit on zoom as much as you do in person. And, and that actually has value, right? Sometimes like that's where the, the really good ideas come from is when you actually kind of let the brain relax for a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think we're going to have sort of that hybrid, but I also think that like, th th for example, the speed of our execution in being able to make decisions has actually gone up, not down. Uh, like the sort of the zoom effect of, you know, people don't, you don't have to like build in commute time. Like, well, I'm in San Francisco. I got to make it down the Menlo park right. or vice versa. Um, I, I actually think it's easier to get people into a meeting um, than it was before. And so I think we're going to keep a lot of those innovations. For example, I think go we'll, back to an office after this, or it will be like, will you be I remote do, first? What I do you do. think the pattern is for you guys? I think we'll be, I think we'll have an office, but I think we'll be pretty heavily remote. And I think um, it's going to be, we're going to figure out 
you know, by the way, all this stuff was like, you know, the ideas were there with like Cisco telepresence and stuff. This idea that, you know, it wouldn't really matter if you were in the room or no not. I believed it. I think that's, yeah. I know, but it's, it, it was too early, right? Yeah. It was, it was like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars for the setup or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you had to have, you know, massive internet connection, which was expensive at the time. All that, I mean, you have cellular connections now that can support that kind of bandwidth. So I, I think, uh, I think a lot of that stuff was just too early. And I think now we, it's, it's going to stick. And I think a lot of people also, I think people would have been skeptical about, I was skeptical, like, Hey, can we really do this without an office? Um, but it's COVID sort of forced, you we didn't really have an option, right? It's either mm -hmm. that or pack up the, right. pack up the shop. And so, um, but now you see it working. I think people are like, Oh yeah, that, that does actually work. Like, and it's faster as you yeah, said, you know, a lot of benefits. Um, um uh, you know, like we have, um, I, you know, people don't talk about like kind of the back office finance team mm -hmm. um, in venture that much, but it's an important function. You know, a lot of our finance folks would live, you know, like in the East Bay, they have like, you know, an hour plus commute, you know, kind of into the office each day. They've been as or more effective as they were before. And a lot, and I think we're absolutely going to say to them, hey, as long as you're getting your job done. Better quality of life. Know, yeah. Yeah, totally. Another two hours with your kids. I mean, that's, that's a no brainer. What about um, geography? I feel like it, it's been a catalyst for an ongoing <clears throat> change that maybe um, Tim's vision had ignited at some level a decade prior, right? Uh, we're seeing a lot of shift in startup activity around the country, let alone globally. How has that affected your local community in Silicon Valley? What are, what are your expectations? What are you seeing? Well, I think the, the, the thing I think that I would 100% agree with with Tim's vision is that there's founders all over the world, there's opportunities all over the world, and that you know startups should should exist in every country, every geography, targeting every market. The thing I would question is why am I the investor to 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 be the right investor for those companies? So I feel like I understand the U.S. I understand I understand how to target global markets as a U.S. company, um, but like I I understand that or at least I believe that my my networks and my knowledge are finite. And you know, like if you take China as an example. You know, um, I don't believe that I would be an effective investor investing in Chinese companies with with Chinese founders because I don't understand those markets. I don't understand the cultural norms. I don't have the context. I don't speak the language. Um, you know, and so I I think I would rather be personally a limited partner, an investor in the best Chinese GPs than try to be the the, the GP in China myself. And I think, um, you know, maybe that's you know overly conservative, but I just I just think that the the skill, there are some skill sets that would transfer, but I think there are more things that, that would. And so for us, it's kind of recognizing what are we really great at and then not expanding beyond that. Um, to me, as an investor, that's kind of like first principles. But, um, you know, I think does, does that know, mean U.S. is the geographical boundary <clears throat> for your firm and how you guys are thinking about it? Or does it even become more from narrow a, than that over time? Yeah. So I think of it as like where the founders are going to spend their time. Mm -hmm. So um, a number of our companies. Um, uh, so I have, uh, you know, uh, I've, you know, TalkDesk has more employees in Portugal than we do in the U.S. Mm. Um, by a large margin. One of my most recent investments, you know, we have more um, employees in Scandinavia um, than we do in the U.S. But in both cases, the founders are resident in the U.S. and spend time here, and the, right. you know, a lot of the executive hiring is here. Um, and so, uh, and you know, you're also primarily just initially targeting U.S. markets. Um, I think I would. I would be hesitant to invest in a company that was targeting an, an international market specifically, as opposed to building a solution that naturally scaled to international markets over time. What about if that makes sense? A offshore management team targeting U.S. markets that doesn't move to the you know, if there was a team out of Paris I, that wanted to focus on U.S. customers. Yeah. Would that be a fit for you, or would the team need to move to the U.S. as well? The management. So interesting. So I, I would be open to it, but I would also question whether I was the right investor for them. And I would probably tell them that. And in terms of like cultural the team need to move your um, that, but also just like, you know, you know, even just time zones and, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like, do I, you know, do I have the right networks to support them? Um, uh, you know, uh, you touched on this, but would the team need to move this whole idea of like founders needing to do anything because the VC say so drives me crazy. Like one of the things I believe really deeply is I've seen every kind of founder be successful or not successful in venture. And the one thing I've learned is that it does, there's no one style that works. Uh, there's lots of different styles that work. And I think it, it is VCs need to recognize that we're in a support role. Not, we're not, we're the support. We're not the stars. I love and that. our role, 
it's it's really true. And I think, I think we need to adapt our styles to the fa- to each founder, not the other way around. So I, I play a different role on different boards and I bring sort of a different me to different companies because it's it's what works best with each founder. So I have some founders that want to talk almost daily, right? right. Or, or in some cases, if, if they're engaged in some sort of process, maybe more than daily. I have some founders that are like, hey, I'll call you when I need something. I'm fine with both. Um, you know, I, I think this idea that like, well, you know, we're going to do it this way because this is how right. I like to run board meetings or whatever. It, that stuff drives me crazy. The mm. whole idea of like teams would move because venture capitalists say they have to move. Like you're it's nuts. You're reinforcing my empathic VC uh, moniker. For no. You. Yeah. Well, it's, it's great. I think you should go with it. I think people will love it. All right. I want to uh, wrap this up <laughs> here. You've been very kind with your time and generous. A um, couple of uh, rapid fire questions for you. I'm going to steal some of those nuggets of wisdom you used to share while I would walk you to a board meeting. What's been one bit of advice you would give to young VCs listening? What do they need to know to be good at this job? I, I mean, I, I think the, I, the biggest one I'd say is that, that that whole thing about like, you know, we're the support, not the, not the stars. Um, I think the other thing would be um, recognize that there's a long lag between the, the decisions and the results and focus on process and not, not outcomes. And so I used to play a lot of poker. And, you know, in poker, you can do absolutely everything right, make the right decisions and still lose, not just hands, but like sessions, weeks, months. I mean, you can, there's a lot of variance and and the same is true in venture, but I believe strongly that if you're making decisions that are, let's say, you know, instead of flipping a coin, if you're betting 51 versus 49, over time, that's going to work out for you. Mm -hmm. And so just stick with your process. Unless you're doing low volume of deals. Well, but, but each, I would argue each investment is a series of hundreds of, inv- of decisions that Fair. are chained over time, Fair. right? And so, because, um, yeah, that is one thing that's really, one of the hardest parts about the business is you'll see well-motivated, intelligent, nice, hardworking people still fail. And you'll see absolutely. people who are absolutely the reverse succeed, and it can sort of drive you crazy, but you just have to make your peace with there's variance in the world. And, but if you, um, I guess the other thing I'd say is, you know, reputations take years or decades to build and like seconds to destroy. And so, you know, just try and be cognizant of that. And, you know, it's sort of like, you know, um, uh, Box had a, one of Box's company values was make mom proud. That's awesome. You know, to- totally agree with that. That's awesome. Okay. One bit of advice for founders, founders listening, um, what do yeah, they need so, to know? And, so, you know, you've been on both sides of this table here as an entrepreneur. And yeah. Investing. So, I'd sort of split into two. I'd say the, the first quick one would be like kind of the, the same thing about the, the venture, like kind of stick with it. Like it's a long haul. It's hard. You know, uh, I, I have so much respect for what I, I did, you know, three and a half years as a founder and it almost killed me. Um, I have so much respect for founders who do this for, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. Um, it's never, it, even if it seems easy from the outside, it's never easy. The amount of stress that founders go through is immense. Um, I'd say, you know, have good support systems, take it easy on yourself um you know take care of yourself through the journey um because it's a, it's a it's a marathon not a sprint um and mistakes you're going to make mistakes you just need to sort of accept them and move on and learn from them um the other thing i think is persuasiveness so i think a lot of um founders underestimate that the the, the primary role of the founder as opposed to anyone else in the company i would argue is to be a magnet and you're a magnet for uh capital for for talent um, you know, for customers who are, who are betting on this like company that may, you know, not exist and, and that you know, may leave them sort of holding the bag, you're bringing everyone around the vision that you have. And so persuasiveness is really important. So it's, it's not just building the better mousetrap. You have to be able to communicate it in a way that resonates for all those. So one of the things that we really look for is how persuaded are we when we talk to the founder? Like, is, is he or she getting us excited about their vision? Um, in a way that, you know, in that, in that first meeting, because that's going to be the same with people they're trying to hire and other investors and customers. And so I think, you know, persuasiveness is not, some people are just born with it. It's definitely something you can learn. Um, there's, you know, there are some, you know, there's lots of great, you know, books and training, whatever about it, about just how to kind of, you know, frame things and how to get people's attention. And, um, like when I was, I, I tended to talk about like my product features, for example, as opposed to talking about customers' problems. Mm-hmm. and solutions right and so like that's like a basic one you know was, um but uh yeah i would say like remember that your your job is to be a magnet and that's really different than like that that's very specific to the founder as opposed to like the C- I i would argue necessarily the ceo as always josh very insightful thank you so much for coming on today i want to give everyone a- thanks for having me man. absolutely glad you did this 
special thanks to Josh for sharing his perspective on the VC industry. Josh is a great guy and an old friend. I hope you enjoyed the convo. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any other major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.